Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. I'm Chris Higashi, Program Manager of the Washington Center for the Book at the Seattle Public Library. Welcome to tonight's event with Donna Tart, wonderful writer. So first we thank Elliott Bay Book Company for inviting us to co-present this evening. We thank the Seattle Times for generous promotional support for library programs, our author series sponsor, Gary Kunis. And finally, this event is supported by the Seattle Public Library Foundation. To you foundation donors who are here with us tonight, we want to say thank you very much for your support. Here's Rick Simonson to introduce the rest of the program. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. We are delighted and thrilled to be here tonight. Um, there's many ways one could go in talking about having Donna Tart here, and one of the, one of them is that in this um, day and age, when um, things, the shelf life and awareness of some things seems ephemeral and fleeting, to have an author who writes a book once every ten or so years uh, you know, come along and be known and noticed um, is a, is a rare thing. I mean, there's this kind of thing like, who is this and who was this? Uh, because if you say, I remember when. Um, it was in 1992, um, I was down at the old Elliott Bay, that Donna Tart first came to Seattle as an author um, for her debut, which a, bo- a book that was an event, even though it was published, The Secret History, um, a, that, that um, became, um, in its publication and in all these years since, a book that's been read and, and talked about and kept going. Um, ten, year, uh, ten years passed, and uh, we were actually, I believe, at, um, in fact, the library was not in existence here yet, but we were um, at Kane Hall, the University of Washington campus, and a similar reception to this for the, the novel that had taken ten years in The Little Friend, and again, um, this um, amazing and great response. So tonight, for um, it's been 11 years, and, um, and what's happening in Seattle and is being mirrored elsewhere is, is this response to um, this extraordinary, amazing, um, rich, compelling new novel, The Goldfinch, um, a book that um, is so expansive and tells um, stories richly and widely of, of certainly of this, the, the young boy and young man whose, whose story is at the center of it, but um, tells the story of a city and tells the story of a place and tells um, these kind of linked lives and um, convoluted twists and fates of, of many involved. And um, uh, certain cataclysmic things happen and, and set things in motion. And it's how people um, interact and interplay with all of it that, that Donna Tart would, um, writes so um, adroitly and movingly and powerfully of, of, of what... It is that makes different people do different things in all these situations. She's um, a, a great chronicler of human behavior and, and insight into all these things that happen. So tonight, she will read from um, um, Goldfinch and uh, a book that actually there were some other little stories that some people know that um, have these interesting mirrors and in the, the painting that this um, is in this book, um, a Dutch famous Dutch painting actually showed up in New York as this book was being published. 
um, there's fortuitous things or not, but th this book um, is a, a, a definitely an occasion to be celebrating. So again, for everyone at Elliott Bay and also um, with our friends at the Seattle Public Library Foundation, we thank you very much for being here tonight and now ask you to please join in welcoming the wonderful and extraordinary writer, Donna Tartt. all. Um, this is my first time in Seattle since I read here for Little Friend, so it's a long time, but it's good to be back. Um, the scene I'm going to read, my narrator, Theo, um, is a 13-year-old boy. He's just lost his mother in an accident, and the social workers have just come to tell him that his mother is dead. The social workers put me in the back seat of their compact car and drove me to a diner downtown near their work, a fake grand place glittering with beveled mirrors and cheap Chinatown chandeliers. Once we were in the booth, both of them on one side, with me facing, they took clipboards and pens from their briefcases and tried to make me eat some breakfast while they sat sipping coffee and asking questions. It was still dark outside. The city was just waking up. I don't remember crying or eating either, though all these years later, I can still smell the scrambled eggs they ordered for me. The memory of that heaped plate with the steam coming off it still ties my stomach in knots. The diner was mostly empty. Sleepy busboys unpacked boxes of bagels and muffins near the counter. A wan cluster of club kids with smudged eyeliner were huddled in a nearby booth, I remember staring over at them with a desperate, clutching attention. A sweaty boy in a mandarin jacket, a bedraggled girl with pink streaks in her hair, and also at an old lady in full makeup and a fur coat much too warm for the weather, who was sitting by herself at the counter, eating a slice of apple pie. The social workers, who did everything but, snake, uh, but shake me and snap their fingers in my face to get me to look at them, seemed to understand how unwilling I was to absorb what they were trying to tell me. Taking turns, they leaned across the table and repeated what I did not want to hear. My mother was dead. She had been struck in the head by flying debris. She had died instantly. They were sorry to be the ones who broke the news. It was the worst part of their job, but they really, really needed me to understand what had happened. My mother was dead, and her body was at New York Hospital. Did I understand? Yes, I said, in the long pause where I realized they were expecting me to say something. Their blunt, insistent use of the words death and dead was impossible to reconcile with their reasonable voices, their polyester business clothes, the Spanish pop music on the radio, and the peppy signs behind the counter, fresh fruit smoothie, diet delight, try our turkey hamburger, Sitting red-eyed in my shock before my rapidly cooling plate of scrambled eggs, I could scarcely grasp the more practical aspects of my situation. In light of what had happened, their questions about my father seemed so wholly beside the point that I had a hard time understanding why they kept asking so insistently about him. So, when's the last time you saw him, said the Korean lady, who'd asked me several times to call her by her first name. I've tried and tried to recall it and can't. I can still see her plumpish hands folded on the table, though, and the disturbing shade of her nail polish, 
an ashen, silvery color, something between lavender and blue. A guesstimate prompted the man Enrique. About your dad. Ballpark will do, the Korean lady said. When do you think you last saw him? Um, I said. It was an effort to think. Sometime last fall? My mother's death still seemed like a mistake that might be straightened out somehow if I pulled myself together and cooperated with these people. October? September? She said again, gently, when I didn't respond. My head hurt so badly I felt like crying whenever I turned it, although my headache was the least of my problems. I don't know, I said, after school started. September, would you say, then? Asked Enrique, glancing up as he made a note on his clipboard. He was a tough-looking guy, uneasy in his suit and tie, like a sports coach gone to fat. But his tone conveyed a reassuring sense of the nine-to-five world, office filing systems, industrial carpeting, business as usual in the borough of Manhattan. No contact or communication since then. Who's a buddy or a close friend who might know how to reach him, said the Korean lady, leaning forward in a motherly way. The question startled me. I didn't know of any such person. Even the suggestion that my father had close friends, much less buddies, conveyed a misunderstanding of his personality so profound I didn't know how to, pers- how to respond. It was only after the plates had been taken away, in the edgy lull after the meal was finished but no one was getting up to leave, that it crashed down on me all at once where all their seemingly irrelevant questions about my father and my Decker grandparents in Maryland, I couldn't remember the town, some semi-rural subdivision behind a Home Depot, and my, un- my non-existent aunts and uncles had been so plainly leading. I was a minor child without a guardian. I was to be removed immediately from my home, or the environment, as they kept calling it. Until my father's parents were contacted, the city would be stepping in. But what are you going to do with me? I asked for the second time, pushing back in my chair, a crackle of panic rising in my voice. It had all seemed very informal when I'd turned off the television and left the apartment with them for a bite to eat, as they'd said. Nobody had said a word about removing me from my home. Enrique glanced down at his clipboard. Well, Teo, he kept pronouncing it Teo, they both did, which was wrong. You're a minor child in need of immediate care. We're going to need to place you in some kind of emergency custody. Custody? The word made my stomach crawl. It suggested courtrooms, locked dormitories, basketball courts ringed with barbed wire fence. Well, let's say care then, and only until your grandma and grandpa... Wait, I said, overwhelmed at exactly how fast things were spinning out of control at the false assumption of warmth and familiarity in the way he'd said the words grandma and grandpa. We'll just need to make some temporary arrangements until we reach them, said the Korean lady, leaning close. Her breath smelled minty, but also had the slightest underbite of garlic. We know how sad you must be, but there's nothing to worry about. Our job is just to keep you safe until we reach the people who love you and care about you, okay? It was too awful to be real. I stared at these two strange faces across the booth, sallow in the artificial lights. Even the proposition that Grandpa Decker and Dorothy were people who cared about me was absurd. But what's going to happen to me, I said. The main concern, said Enrique, is that you're in a capable foster situation for the time being with someone that'll work hand-in-hand with social services to implement your care plan. Their combined efforts to soothe me Their calm voices and sympathetic, reasonable expressions made me increasingly frantic. 
Stop it, I said, jerking away from the Korean lady who had reached over across the table and was attempting to clasp my hand in a caring way. Look, Tio, let me explain something. Nobody's talking about detention or a juvenile facility. Then what? Temporary custody. All that means is that we take you to a safe place with people who will act as guardians for the state. What if I don't want to go, I said, so loudly that people turned to stare. Listen, Enrique said, leaning back and signaling for more coffee. The city has certified crisis homes for youth in need, fine places. And right now, that's just one option we're looking at. Because in a lot of cases like yours, I don't want to go to a foster home. Kid, you sure don't, the pink-haired club girl said audibly at the next table. Recently, the New York Post had been full of John Tay and Kashawn Divins, the 11-year-old twins who had been raped by their foster father and starved nearly to death up around Morningside Heights. Enrique pretended not to hear this. Look, we're here to help, he said, refolding his hands on the tabletop. And we'll also consider other alternatives if they keep you safe and address your needs. You never told me I couldn't go back to the apartment. Well, city agencies are overburdened. Si, gracias, he said to the waiter who'd come to refill his cup. But sometimes other arrangements can be made if we get provisional approval, especially in a situation like yours. What he's saying? The Korean, t- the Korean lady tapped her fingernail on the formica to get my attention. It's not set in stone you go into the system if there's somebody who can come stay with you for a little while, or vice versa. A little while, I repeated. It was the only part of the sentence that had sunk in. Like, maybe there's somebody else we could call that you might be comfortable staying with for a day or two? Like a teacher, maybe, or a family friend. Off the top of my head, I gave them the telephone number of my old friend Andy Barber, the first number that came to me, maybe because it was the first number beside my own I'd learned by heart. Though Andy and I had been good friends in elementary school, movies, sleepovers, summer classes in Central Park, and map and compass skills... I'm still not quite sure why his name was the first to fall out of my mouth, since we weren't such good friends anymore. We drifted apart at the start of junior high. I'd barely seen him in months. Barber with a U, said Enrique as he wrote the name down. Who are these people? Friends? Yes, I replied. I'd known them all my life, practically. The Barbers lived on Park Avenue. Andy had been my best friend since third grade. His dad has a big job on Wall Street, I said, and then I shut up. It had just occurred to me that Andy's dad had spent some unknown amount of time in a Connecticut mental hospital for exhaustion. What about the mother? She and my mom are good friends. Almost true, but not quite. Though they were on perfectly friendly terms, my mother wasn't nearly rich or connected enough for a social pages lady like Mrs. Barber. No, I mean, what does she do for a living? Charity work, I said, after a disoriented pause. Like the antique show at the armory? So she's a stay-at-home mom. I nodded, glad she'd supplied the phrase so handily, which, though technically true, was not how anyone who knew Mrs. Barber would ever think to describe her. (laughs) Enrique signed his name with a flourish. We'll look into it. Can't promise anything, he said, clicking his pen and sticking it back in his pocket. We can certainly drop you over with these folks for the next few hours, though, if they're who you want to be with. He slid out of the booth and walked outside. Through the front window, I could see him walking back and forth on the sidewalk, talking on the phone with a finger in one ear. Then he dialed another number for a much shorter call. There was a quick stop at the apartment, less than five minutes, just long enough for me to grab my school bag and a few impulsive and ill-considered articles of clothing. And then, back in the car again, in the back seat, 
Are you buckled up back there? I leaned with my cheek to the cold glass and watched the lights go green all up the empty Dawn Canyon of Park Avenue. Andy lived in the upper 60s in one of the great old white glove buildings on Park where the lobby was straight from a Dick Powell movie and the doormen were still mostly Irish. They'd all been there forever. And as it happened, I remembered the guy who met us at the door, Kenneth, the midnight man. He was younger than most of the other doormen, dead pale and poorly shaven, often a bit slow on the draw from working nights. Though he was a likable guy, had sometimes mended soccer balls for Andy and me, and dispensed friendly advice on how to deal with bullies at school. He was known around the building for having a bit of a drinking problem. And as he stepped aside to usher us in through the grand doors and gave me the first of the many God kid, I'm so sorry, looks I would be receiving over the next months, I smell the sourness of beer and sleep on him. They're expecting you, he said to the social workers. Go on up. It was Mr. Barber who opened the door, first a crack, then all the way. Morning, morning, he said, stepping back. Mr. Barber was a tiny bit strange-looking, with something pale and silvery about him, as if his treatments in the Connecticut ding farm, as he called it, had rendered him incandescent. His eyes were a queer, unstable gray, and his hair was pure white, which made him seem older than he was until you noticed that his face was young and pink, boyish even. His ruddy cheeks and his long, old-fashioned nose, in combination with the prematurely white hair, gave him the amiable look of a lesser founding father, some minor member of the Continental Congress teleported to the 21st century. He was wearing what appeared to be yesterday's office clothes, a rumpled dress shirt, and expensive-looking suit trousers that looked like he had just grabbed them off the bedroom floor. Come on in, he said, briskly, rubbing his eyes with his fist. Hello there, dear, he said to me, the dear startling from him, even in my disoriented state. Barefoot, he padded ahead of us, through the marble foyer. Beyond, in the richly decorated living room, all glazed chintz and Chinese jars, it felt less like morning than midnight, silk-shaded lamps burning low, big dark paintings of naval battles and drapes drawn against the sun. There, by the baby grand, and a flower arrangement the size of a packing case, stood Mrs. Barber in a floor-sweeping housecoat, pouring coffee into cups on a silver tray, as she turned to greet us, I could feel the social workers taking in the apartment and her. Mrs. Barber was from a society family with an old Dutch name, so cool and blonde and monotone that sometimes she seemed partially drained of blood. She was a masterpiece of composure. Nothing ever ruffled her or made her upset. And though she was not beautiful, her calmness had the magnetic pull of beauty a stillness so powerful that the molecules realigned themselves around her whenever she came into a room. Like a fashion drawing come to life, she turned heads wherever she went, gliding along obliviously without appearing to notice the turbulence she created in her wake. Her eyes were spaced far apart, her ears were small, high-set, and very close to her head, and her body was long-waisted and thin, like an elegant weasel's. Andy had these features as well, but in ungainly proportions, without her slinky, ermine grace. In the past, her reserve, or coldness, depending how you saw it, had sometimes made me uncomfortable. But that morning, I was grateful for her sang-froid. Hi there. We'll be putting you in the room with Andy, she said to me, without beating around the bush. I'm afraid he's not up for school yet, though. If you'd like to go lie down for a while, you're perfectly welcome to go to Platt's room. Platt was Andy's older brother away at school. 
You know where it is, don't you? I said that I did. Are you hungry? No. Well then, tell us what we can do for you. I was aware of them all looking at me. My headache was bigger than anything else in the room. In the bullseye mirror above Mrs. Barber's head, I could see the whole scene replicated in freakish miniature. Chinese jars, coffee tray, awkward-looking social workers and all. In the end, it was Mr. Barber who broke the spell. Come along then, let's get you squared away, he said, clapping his hand on my shoulder and firmly steering me out of the room. No, back here, this way, aft, aft, right back here. The only time I'd ever set foot in Platt's room several years before, Platt, who was a champion lacrosse player and a bit of a psychopath, had threatened to beat the ever-living crap out of Andy and me. When he'd lived at home, he'd stayed in there all the time with the door locked, and, Andy told me, smoked pot. Now all his posters were gone, and the room was very clean and empty-looking since he was away at Groton. There were free weights, stacks of old National Geographics, an empty aquarium. Mr. Barber, opening and closing drawers, was babbling a bit. Let's see what's in here, shall we? Bedsheets. And more bedsheets. I'm afraid I never come in here. I do hope you'll forgive me. Ah, Swimming trunks. Won't be needing those this morning, will we? Scrabbling around in yet a third drawer, he finally produced some new pajamas with the tags still on. Ugly as hell. Reindeer on electric blue flannel. No mystery why they'd never been worn. Well then, he said, running a hand through his hair and cutting his eyes anxiously toward the door. I'll leave you now. Hell of a thing that's happened, good Lord. You must be feeling awfully rough. A good solid sleep will be the best thing in the world for you. Are you tired, he said, looking at me closely. Was I? I was wide awake, and yet part of me was so glassed off and numb, I was practically in a coma. If you'd rather have company, perhaps if I build a fire in the other room, tell me what you want. At this question, I felt a sharp rush of despair, for as bad as I felt, there was nothing he could do for me. And from his face, I realized he knew that too. We're only in the next room if you need us. That is to say, I'll be leaving soon for work, but someone will be here. His pale gaze darted around the room and then returned to me. Perhaps it's incorrect of me, but in the circumstances, I wouldn't see the harm in pouring you what my father used to call a minor nip. (laughs) If you should happen to want such a thing. Which, of course, you don't, he added hastily, noting my confusion. Quite unsuitable. Never mind. (laughs) He stepped closer, and for an uncomfortable moment, I thought he might touch me or hug me. But instead, he clapped his hands and rubbed them together. In any case, we are perfectly happy to have you, and I hope you'll make yourself as comfortable as you can. You'll speak right up if you need anything, won't you? He had hardly stepped out when there was whispering outside the door. Then a knock. Someone here to see you, Mrs. Barber said and withdrew. And in plodded Andy, blinking, fumbling with his glasses. It was clear that they'd woken him up and hauled him out of bed. With a noisy creak of bed springs, he sat beside me on the edge of Platt's bed, looking not at me, but at the wall opposite. He cleared his throat, pushed his glasses up on the bridge of his nose. There followed a long silence. Urgently, the radiator clanked and hissed. Both his parents had gotten out of there so fast, it was like they'd heard the fire alarm. Wow, he said after some moments in his eerie, flat voice. Disturbing. Yeah, I said. And together we sat in silence, side by side, staring at the dark green walls of Platt's room and the taped squares where his posters had once been. What else was there to say?
Thank you, thank you, thank you. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.